0: I've thought about it for a while how I would tell my story. Um, I think I probably need to give some background, uh, tell you a little bit about who I am so you can understand the context of everything. I grew up in a Christian home. My dad was a pastor for 10 years, actually right down the road in Thompson. Uh, I loved God. I got saved at the age of four. And for the longest time, I wanted to be in ministry. I've always known I wanted to be in ministry. Um, I eventually went to Bible school, uh, studied filmmaking, uh, because it was a, a passion of mine. Um, and that's where I met my wife. Uh, we met in the dorkiest way possible. <laughs> um, we were both debaters, and uh, we met actually on debate team. Uh, our first conversation was in a practice around debating against each other. So I had to tell people my first conversation with my wife was actually an argument and uh, I won that argument. It's the last argument I think I ever won. We knew early on in our relationship that we wanted to have children, and about a year after we got married, we got pregnant for the first time. We were so excited, our families were so excited, Uh, but it was at week eight that uh, we found out that we were having a miscarriage. That was hard. I remember driving home, I was the first time I was alone after we found out that we were having a miscarriage, and I was just, angry. I was angry at God. Uh, Why would he let this happen? Um, God was good though. Um, And about six months later, we got pregnant again. Uh, And this time there were no issues going forward, uh, all the way up to to the end. Um, We found out it was a baby girl uh, and uh, we settled on the name Alexis Lorraine. Alexis because I'd always wanted a little girl named Alex and Lorraine because uh, that was Rochelle's mother's middle name. I remember uh, the morning that we hit full term with Alexis. Uh, We had an early morning doctor's appointment so Rochelle and I were were laying in bed that morning. I remember feeling, feeling Alexis kick uh, and and just being excited for for the life that was going to be joining us in just a few days. Uh, We got to the doctors and uh, the the nurse came in, she asked the normal questions, she pulled out the the device to check for a heartbeat and um, she couldn't find one. Uh, She didn't say anything at first, um, but we could tell pretty early on that something wasn't right. Uh, The doctor then came in and and he did the same thing um, and also couldn't find a heartbeat so they rushed us over to an ultrasound. Uh, And and um, that's when we could see that Alexis was gone. It was it was weird because people weren't saying that it was over. They just kept saying, we're gonna try this next thing. We're gonna try this next thing. And, and I remember just being hopeful that maybe, maybe they were wrong. But eventually, eventually we went into the doctor's office and he sat us down. And he said that our baby had died. And that was the first time anybody had said that. That's when it became very real. The days that followed were really tough. We had to have a funeral. Family flew in, but instead of flying in to celebrate, it was mourning, And we said goodbye to my daughter. few months went by um, and we were having a trip out with Rochelle's family um, who lived in Kansas. We were in North Carolina at the time. Uh, and so we were spending a few days with them and we were sitting down talking um, about our relationship and ways that we wanted to grow and improve our relationship. Um, and that's when I, I started to notice an anger in, in my in-laws directed towards me and directed towards Rochelle. And so as we started to find out what was going on, um, we found out that they felt that it was our fault that Alexis had died. Um, see, they they believed that God was punishing us because of the church that we went to. A church not unlike this one. Uh, but they came from a different background, uh, a very conservative one, and felt that Uh, the music that our church played was was not um, good Uh, and that God was judging us for that. That was hard to hear. That was hard to swallow. Um, And as you can imagine, there was a rift that kind of formed in our relationship from that point. This rift in the relationship with my in-laws, it didn't get better. Um, It grew, in fact, to the point where um, They said they didn't want to speak to us anymore. Uh, It was in fact fact January of uh, 2015 when they decided that it was the same day that Kaylee, my second daughter, was born. So it was June 28th of 2015, so six months after Kaylee was born, that we got a phone call from Rochelle's brother, uh, Brandon, that there had been an accident at their home. Uh, Specifically, there had been an explosion, uh, and it had killed Michelle's brother Spencer and her mother and her brother Riley were on a helicopter being flown to Wichita uh, for emergency burn care. We didn't wait. We picked up the phone, we called her dad, and we said we're coming. And we got on a plane the next morning and at 9 o'clock in the morning, we got off of a plane with our six-month-old daughter and we were reunited with her brother brother and her father, uh, who at that point we hadn't spoken to in well over a year. It was a bittersweet reunion. I think the pain was still there, the things that have been said hadn't gone, but there's something about tragedy that makes everything else seem kind of small uh, and insignificant. And this tragedy certainly did that for us. Both her mother and Riley were in comas when we got there um, and they never woke up from them. Riley passed away two weeks after the explosion and her mother a week after that. We had three funerals in three weeks. All these things that have happened in my life are, are very heavy and they're a weight that I carry to this day. But that isn't the end of my story. See, I haven't talked to you yet about God. So now I wanna to talk to you about God and my God story. Hi. That's heavy. Um, I feel like we, we all probably need to breathe a little bit. Um, I want to tell you guys something about me, something very personal. I, I don't tell a lot of people this, so if you could like keep it between us, each other. Like, maybe don't tell people in the first service. It would be the big thing. I... I'm a compulsive idea guy. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely true. The reason I'm standing here right now is because I'm an impulsive idea guy. I walked into Glenn's office a couple months ago, and I said, you know, Glenn, if there's, if there's ever a Sunday that, you know, you're not preaching and Travis isn't preaching and Brian's not preaching, you know, we got this deep bench here. Maybe, you know, if there was a need, I'd be happy to fill in. And he said, sure, how about September 8th? So here we are. Um, I'm not used to people taking my ideas seriously. Um, In fact, most people who know me, you know, they say, oh, that's a good idea, and they just kind of move on. What I'm more used to is this, my my greatest idea ever. I was five years old. I was, I I peaked early. Uh, Five years old, I had this idea. I'm driving home from church, mom's driving, I lean forward into the front seat, and I say, mom, I have an idea. She said, "What, what is it? Why don't you rent a movie and buy some candy? And I'll watch the movie and eat the candy. <laughs> it's my greatest idea of all time. She, uh, she didn't go for it. She didn't see the vision in it. All right, guys, let's, uh, let's open our Bibles. Uh, and let's go to John chapter 9. And we're going to read verses 1 through 13. And as you're turning there, if you, would, uh, if you, wouldn't, mind, if you wouldn't mind standing, um, out of respect for the reading of God's word this morning, John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be uh, be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pole of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. And the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? And some said, It is he. And others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. And so they said to him, Then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. it's all right with you guys, I'm going to say a quick prayer. Um, I don't do this often. I don't preach often. uh, And uh, I could use prayer. Um, If you wouldn't mind praying along with me that God would would be working in all of our hearts uh, to hear the message that he has. Father, you are good, and you are a God who is bigger than me. I pray, that the words that I speak today would be your words that you've given to me, and that I would be a faithful messenger of your of your gospel. You know I pray. Amen. All right, let me set the stage. Let me talk about what's going on here. So Jesus and his disciples have come to Jerusalem, and the disciples are about to ask him. One of the most profound questions of that age in fact it was a debate that was going on amongst the religious leaders see there was a common belief that if you committed a sin god would punish you in equal weight to that sin so for instance if i walked over to glenn and stole five dollars, god would punish me to the value of five dollars that's the idea of an eye for an eye a tooth for a tooth that was very much how people viewed the wrath of god or the punishment of god in their lives But that particular thing raised one issue, which was what do you do with children who were born with maladies? They hadn't committed a sin. How is it that they could be suffering like this? And so there were two theories. Theory number one is that at some point in that child's life, again, God being omniscient and knowing all things, at some point they were going to commit a sin so dire that it was worth an entire lifetime of suffering. That was theory number one. Uh, Theory number two was that... uh, Something the parents had done, or something a loved one had done. They were being punished by having to care for this child their whole life. So those were the two prevailing theories, and it was debated hotly at the time. And the disciples, they have the right idea. They're going to go to Jesus, because Jesus has the answers. And they think, now we're finally going to know, why is there suffering? But Jesus does what he always does, and he doesn't answer their question. Instead, he turns it back on himself, Let's look at uh, verse 3. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There, we've done it. We now know why we have suffering in the world. We've answered the question. That's it, folks. Well, that's question number one, is why is there suffering? And the answer is, it's simple. I think we probably all know. We suffer to glorify God. But there are two more difficult questions that I want to answer today questions that i've had to wrestle with question number one is does god want people to suffer see if you read this passage it would be an easy conclusion to draw that if god wants to be glorified through us he must want us to suffer so he can do that and then question number two question number two is if we're to give god the glory through suffering how do we do that so i want to dive into that first question does god want people to suffer turn with me in your bibles and i'm going to encourage you keep your finger moist this morning because we are going to be in a lot of passages, let's turn to Jeremiah, chapter 29, verse 11. And I would encourage you: this is a, I think, an incredibly important verse in Jeremiah. If you haven't memorized this verse, memorize it today. Uh, and if you don't make scripture memory a part of your regular growth, start memorizing scripture. We just finished a whole series on how to be a disciple. Disciples memorize the word of God so it is hidden in their heart. But well, let's read together Jeremiah 29. Verse 11, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Wow, what an encouraging passage. God has good plans for us. In fact, some of your translations probably read that verse as, I have good plans for you. So God wants good. But how do you square that then, if God wants good and welfare and a bright future with suffering? Well, there's a group of people who have attempted to do that, uh, and they've taken the truth that God has good plans, but they've created a lie. These people have written books like Your Best Life Now. Uh, it goes by, their, their, their preaching goes by terms such as the prosperity gospel or the word of faith. They have names like Joel Olstein, TJ Jakes, or, uh, or, or um, Joyce Myers. They're going to say things like, if you give to God, he will give to you. If you open your hand to God, he will open his hand to you. If you have enough faith, you can be healed. And yet we look around and we see suffering and we ask ourselves, well, is it that I don't have enough faith? Is that why I'm not well? Is it that I, don't have, is that, that I don't give enough? Is that why I don't have? This is a lie. It is not the gospel. Let me tell you a little bit about God's good plans. God had a good plan for Stephen. Stephen preached the gospel and he was stoned to death. That was God's good plan. Let me tell you about God's good plan for Peter. Peter preached the gospel, and he was crucified upside down. That was part of God's good plan. Paul was stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, and ultimately martyred. This was all part of God's good plan. You see, God's good is not the same as our good. But there's another facet to this, and that is that we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is broken. Nobody understood that better than Job. Uh, So let's turn our Bibles to Job chapter 2. We just finished the book of Job as a series last year, um, and I thoroughly—I got so much out of that series. Um, and and Job, uh, let me set the stage a little bit. Satan has come to God, and he said, "You know, your servant Job—he only serves you because you give him good things. Let me have a whack at it." And so, right now, at the point that we're at in Job chapter two, Job has lost everything: his children, his home, his livestock, his livelihood. Everything is gone. And Job's wife turns to him and says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. There's a couple of key elements in this verse 10 that I want to turn our attention to. He says, Shall we receive good from who? 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 there we go, yeah. Shall we receive good from God? So, so by default, who is good from? Okay. Uh, and then he says, and shall we not receive evil? He doesn't say evil from God. See, God is not the author of pain. God is not the author of suffering. We live in a fallen world. Sin is the author of suffering. That's the world that we live in. But God is able, and God will make good out of that suffering. And that is the incredible thing about God. God is, is good. So no, God does not want people to suffer, but we live in a fallen world where there is suffering. God's desire is to be glorified. So that brings us to the next question. How then do we glorify God? so glad you asked. I have three points. It's a well-written sermon. I believe there are three steps to glorifying God, and they are endure, pray, and take action. And I want to start with endure. If you'll turn in your Bibles again to Hebrews. I wasn't kidding when I said lots of flipping. To Hebrews, chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 and 2. This is a very familiar passage. Uh, Paul has written this uh, to Christians in uh, Jerusalem. And, uh, And he says here in verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clink so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So what's what's Paul saying here? Well, the first step to endurance is you need to run your race. God has uniquely designed a race for you, and nobody else can run it. It belongs to you alone. And you have to continue. So when you find yourself in suffering, you can't stop. You can't wallow. You can't say, I'm broken. I can't go any further. Because here's a secret it's not about you. Your suffering, it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And you're going to see that here in verse 2. Looking to Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. It's about Jesus. See, I think often we read the Bible and we think of it as a bunch of good stories that teach us morals. We read the stories and we think, I want to be more like that person. I want to be more like this person. But if you're reading the Bible and thinking, I want to be more like the people I read in the Bible, you're reading it wrong it's not about you. See, if you read the story of David and you think, someday I want to have the strength to slay the giants, you're missing the point. It's not about David. If you read the Bible and you say, someday I wish like Daniel to be able to go before the mouth of the lions and have the courage to stand up, it's not about Daniel. See, Jesus, God was the one who slayed Goliath. He merely put David in the right place at the right time. Daniel only, only depended on God who in fact closed the lion's mouth and God was glorified through those. The mistake that we make is to think that we are the heroes of our own story. Often I think, I catch myself thinking of myself as my life is like a play, a great melodrama. Uh, and, and I am the starring character of the play. And all of you are supporting actors in the play that is my life. But the truth is, I'm not the star of my own life. Jesus is. I am a supporting actor. And a part of endurance is understanding your role in the race. Your role is to run. But Jesus will finish. And it's about him. Which brings us to the second part. If we've endured, how then do we speak to God? How then do we pray? Let's turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. We're going to read verses uh, 16 through 18 in Daniel 3. So uh, well, let me set the stage a little bit here. So Daniel and his friends, uh, they have been captured uh, and taken out of, uh, uh, out of their homes in Israel and taken to Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar did this in every single country that he conquered. He would go and he would find the young men who had the potential to become great leaders. And instead of just killing them, he would take them back to Babylon. It accomplished two things. One, it made it so that they couldn't mount insurrection. Without a leader, it's hard to, you know, foment insurrection. The second is, it then allowed Babylon to have the knowledge and the leadership of all of these great countries in one place, and it helped Babylon to have a great kingdom. But Nebuchadnezzar has done something here. He's made an idol, a golden idol, unto himself, and he's erected it, and he's told the representatives of every nation, bow before this idol, and they do. With the exception of Three curiously placed people, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's what we're going to pick up in verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will serve not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. There are three things that we can draw from this in our prayer life. The first is that God can deliver us. They say to Nebuchadnezzar, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. So when you pray, pray with belief that God can deliver you. God is able to remove you from this situation, whatever it is. God is able to take the pain away. God is able to uh, save lives. We serve a God who is able. I remember after we flew to Kansas, I remember sitting at my, my mother-in-law's bedside just praying, God, please don't let her die. God, please save her. And I believed they could. There's a second part. The second part is belief that he will. How often do we pray a hollow prayer? Because we know God can. You know, God can do anything. But do you actually believe that God will? And that's a hard prayer. It takes a step of faith to say, I believe that God will answer this prayer. I believe that God will save this life. I believe that God will remove me from this situation. I believe that God will relieve my suffering. But then you have the third part, which is the hardest part of all. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden golden image that you have set up. If God does not answer my prayer, I will still glorify God. And that's hard. That's really hard because that's taking it out of your hands and putting it into God's. To God be the glory because it's not about you, it's about Him. So if we've now prayed and we know that God can and God will, but even if He doesn't, I will glorify Him, then that brings us to the third step, and this is taking action. So, let's turn in our Bibles again to John chapter 9. We're going to finish out where we started. John chapter 9, and we're going to pick up in verse 24. Because I think that the man born blind, he gets it. And he knows what comes next. We're going to pick up in verse 24. So the second time, they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. So let me set the stage. The Pharisees have called this man in. And they are ready to grill him because they've got Jesus. They they actually know that they've got him this time because he committed a great sin. See, I didn't tell you this earlier, but uh, this is the Sabbath. Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath, which is, if you're a religious leader, that's tantamount to heresy. That is the worst thing you can do. And so that's why they say, we know this man is a sinner. Verse 25, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, "What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes?" And I answered them, "I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples?" And they reviled him saying, "You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from." And the man answered, "Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners." But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This guy gets it. The first step to action is to speak. You have to tell people your story. You see, God gave you your unique story, and you glorify him when you point people to Christ through it matthew chapter 5 verse 16 i'll just go there quickly for the sake of time because i want to be you know aware of aware of that so matthew chapter 5 verse 16 jesus is teaching uh, and he says hold on i'm one page away he says in the same way let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and gave glory to God the Father who is in heaven. God is saying, let your light shine. Nobody else can shine it for you. I can't do it. Pastor Glenn can't do it. Only you can shine your light. And God has given it to you uniquely. And you have to share it with others. Now you might say, Peter, that's all fine and well, but, but you don't know me. I mean, I can see you up there. You're an extrovert. It's clear. You don't have a problem speaking in front of people. You are probably the right messenger for this. But me... I'm an introvert. I'm scared. I'm ashamed. Nobody, can, nobody would love me if they knew what I did. Nobody would love me if they know what I've gone through. Or it's too hard for me. It hurts too much. It's too fresh. I can't do it. Let's turn to Mark chapter 8 verse 34 because Jesus has an answer for that too. This is another verse that if you don't have it memorized, you should memorize it. You should also hang it on the mirror at home so when you brush your teeth in the morning, it's the first thing you see. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. It's not about you. There's nothing easy about this. Denying yourself is hard. Picking up your cross is hard. It's heavy. It's going to cut you up. It's a long walk, and at the end of that walk, you're going to get crucified. There's nothing easy about it. But it's not about you. It never was. It's about Christ. Take up your cross, because it's not about you. I showed the film at the beginning. I kind of told the beginnings of my story but i told you that that wasn't the end um so i want to tell you the rest of the story i want to tell you about i to tell you about god um we serve a god who makes good the the morning after we found out that alexis was going to be gone we went in we had a, a delivery um we delivered a healthy well it looked like a healthy baby except she didn't cry um i got to hold my daughter i got to look in her eyes i saw my face reflected in hers That's an amazing thing. And at that moment, I determined in my heart that I was going to glorify God through this. I didn't know what that would look like, but I was determined, and I told God, God, this is yours. Um, Alexis has had a greater impact for the kingdom of God than many people will have in their entire lives growing up in church and spending an entire life of faithfulness. The impact my daughter has had. Um, A few days later, we had a funeral uh, and we went home that night, and my sister uh, came over. At the time, my sister wasn't walking with the Lord, and she was angry. She was very angry at God. How could God let this happen? Alexis did nothing to deserve this. I was a fa- she, she looked at me, Peter, you're faithful to God, and, and He would do this to you. How on earth is there a God, and if there is, He must not care. He must not love, because this isn't love. She was angry and frustrated that I wasn't. Um, that was the first time I got to open the Bible to Job chapter 2, the passage we read earlier. We talked about how God is good in a fallen world. Molly is now walking with the Lord. And it's a direct result, she would tell you, of the work that God did through Alexis. That was the point that God started turning her heart back to him. It took time. We don't always get to see that, but I got to see that. That counts towards Alexis. Um, I talked about in the film a rift that was formed with my with my in-laws. Uh, they mistakenly believed that uh, God was punishing us for the church that we went to. Um, my wife grew up in that home and and grew up believing that if you stepped out of line, God was going to punish you to bring you back into line. It's how he chastened you. Uh, and that's that that has biblical principle for certainly we have the the i truly believe that there are consequences to sin if you spend your whole life smoking and get lung cancer that's a you know that's a consequence Um, but that doesn't mean that god is punishing you there's a difference between punishment and consequence you see jesus died on the cross for my sins and when he did he bore the punishment for all the sins i would ever commit If God was punishing me now, that would be to say that his sacrifice was not sufficient. I was able to open the gospel with my wife and give her a truer understanding of the gospel of Christ because Christ loved me enough to bear the full weight of my sin. He left nothing back. After the explosion, and uh, we went out to Kansas, my father-in-law now had experienced a similar pain to mine. We both buried children. Um, and he was, he was racked with guilt because he believed that God punishes you. And what had he done to deserve this? I was able to sit with my father-in-law and once again, share the good news of the gospel. I'm happy to tell you that I now have a restored relationship with my father-in-law. I'm not kidding when I say a week before the explosion, I sat down with my wife and I said, honey, there's nothing we're ever going to be able to do. I've thought of and we've tried absolutely everything. I think we need to come to terms that we're never going to have a relationship with your family. But God is good. And He makes good out of bad. I'll tell you, though, the moment I'm looking forward to the most, the one that I think makes the most good is someday I'm going to go to heaven. And what I do I think Alexis is going to be right there. I think she's going to wrap her arms around me. And she's going to say, Daddy, I'm so glad you're here. Let me show you all the things you don't know. Because Alexis is going to learn everything she ever learns at the feet of Jesus. I'm a practical guy. I'm a, what does this look like on Monday morning? Oh, goodness, guys, thanks for hanging with me. It's not easy. Um, I, I recognize that. What I'm asking of you today is not easy. But God works through it. I'm a very practical guy, and I think in terms of, what does this look like on Monday morning? Um, so I want to give you guys some practical things. In your, uh, in your bulletins this morning, you've might have found this blue sheet. Typically, this blue sheet's covered in notes. It's going to help you guys follow along with the sermon. But I wanted to use it for something different. Uh, Right now, as I've been speaking, you have—you know what your story is. It's been sitting in the back of your mind this whole time. It's been bugging you. You've been thinking, I know what it is. And you've been thinking, I know who I need to share it with. I want you to take the piece of paper, and I want you to write down your story. I want you to write it down, though, and even if it's the first time you've done this, I want you to write it down in the context of— Here's how God has shown me good through this. And then, I want you to write down the names of the people you need to share it with. It might be a family member. It might be a spouse. It might be children. It might be your coworkers, It might be somebody across the country. It might be somebody you're sitting next to right now. I don't know who it is, but there is somebody. I want you to write your story down, and I want you to share it with them. Not because it's easy, but because it's not about you. Your story doesn't belong to you. It's on loan. And you have a limited amount of time to serve God with your story. The second thing, um, I'm very excited to share this with you all today. Um, I'm a filmmaker by trade. I love telling stories. It's why I got into filmmaking in the first place. Um, and, and I'm really excited about the stories that we're about to start telling. We're launching a new series starting today, this afternoon on Facebook, uh, called God's Stories. And these are stories from people right here within our congregation, People who have gone through things that could have torn them apart, but instead turned them to Jesus. People that recognized it's not about them. It's about Jesus. And they are willing to use their stories to glorify him.